Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Fear is a, is a powerful emotion. It's a great motivator, too, really. Um, much of my childhood... I spent um, fluctuating in and out of fear, not because I didn't have a wonderful home and loving parents, but because I had a big brother. Um, And I remember on one occasion, and I just said my parents were wonderful, and they were, maybe they were very young parents, um, and so maybe they weren't the wisest, but they left my brother and I alone for a weekend, and he was in high school probably early high school, and I was in middle school, and he had a friend that was just a constant companion, like another older brother to me, and they were the two varsity football captains and big stud football players, and um, I was the classic sort of smart-mouthed little brother, and I remember on one particular weekend that my parents were away somewhere, leaving us alone as two young teenagers in the house. I wasn't even a teenager yet. I was a little chatty with my brother. And for purposes of self-preservation, I, I locked myself in the bathroom. And this was Friday evening. <laughs> and it somehow developed that it seemed like it should be wise for me to stay in the bathroom for fear of my well-being should I go outside of the bathroom and um, face the wrath of my brother and his best friend. And so I spent the better part of that weekend locked away in that bathroom. I slept. I think I spent two nights on the bathroom floor out of fear. And that fear was driven by uh, the possible consequences of my older brother. And when my parents did come home and he told me they were on their way back and that I should sort of let myself out of the bathroom and act like nothing was amiss, um, an even greater fear hit me. And he said that if you tell them what has transpired in the last 48 hours, it will not go good for you. Doesn't fear have a way of just absolutely shrinking our universe? I think we might be surprised to realize that one of the more common reactions to Jesus in the New Testament is actually fear. And this morning we're going to read a, just a short little story out of Mark chapter 4 where the disciples find themselves in the middle of a storm, and it's probably a very well-known story to many of us who are familiar with the Scriptures. And Jesus calms the storm, and the disciples go from being afraid of the storm to then actually being very afraid of Jesus. That's a strange reaction. I think there's something very profound for us to learn from it. And so... Uh, let's read this brief story, and here's the burden I have on my heart this morning for me and for you is that sometimes we can become so familiar with a particular passage of Scripture, or we're, if we're not very familiar with the Bible, we're at least vaguely familiar with the, with, the, with the story, and it can become so familiar to us that we actually approach it, I think, unwittingly or subconsciously, almost as if it's sort of like a book of common virtues, 
or a bedtime story or merely a children's morality tale and not the very words of God. And so as we come to this, this story this morning, I, I want us to come to it realizing that this, this story is, is the Word of God. And there's much for us to be humbled by and learn from and, uh, and grow in and see. So let me pray, and then we'll read and comment along the way. Now, Father, as we come to you now, we're so grateful for your sweet grace to us, for your providence in our lives, for this time of thanksgiving when we, uh, many of us, come together as a family and, and give particular thought to how you have blessed us and been good to us. Lord, I'm also aware that these holiday times are also often a stressful and painful time for many who have uh, either recently lost loved ones or maybe didn't grow up in a very loving home. And in a strange way, the holidays can actually be hard and depressing times. Lord, would you help us all, regardless of how these past four days have been with family and what our prospects are for a a good December and a good end of the year. Would you help us now to settle our hearts down? Every person in this room is acquainted with fear and anxiety. And the, the strange cure to fear and anxiety is, is a greater fear and awe and reverence of Jesus and his power and beauty. Pray that this morning as we read this short story that is a historical account of your working in this earth that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that Christians would be encouraged and people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus that Lord you would captivate their hearts with the person and work and power and authority of Jesus that you would give them ears to hear and a heart to believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind 
in the sea obey him. Well, there's a few things that I want us to see, and we're just going to get to them one by one, I think, rather than throwing it all at you at once. But before we get to the three things that I want us to see, I, I do want us to, to note something here in this brief account of this very familiar story of Jesus calming the wind and the sea. And, and the first is, is that much of this story is actually kind of unnecessary. Much of the details in this story are sort of unnecessary for the main point. So, so in old literature, when in historic literature of antiquity, when, when a person was, a writer was trying to tell a story or create a legend, oftentimes it was, it was very sparse on particular details about a situation because the point that the writer of the legend or the myth or the story was trying to make was, was really centered on the great miracle or the power or the incredible thing that maybe the, the hero of the story did. But in this particular story, in the Bible, in Mark's recounting of this story about Jesus' life and power, we see something very unique. He actually gives us details that don't seem to be particularly necessary for moving the point of the story along. There's a few of them there. Let's just go back and look at them. It says that it gives us the time of day, and it, it tells us that they left a crowd, and they took, with them, took him with them in the boat just as he was. In other words, I don't know if there was a special sort of fishing garment or attire, but Jesus was in one boat preaching, and it seems like he got in another boat just as he was. And then it gives this description that there are other boats around him. And then in verse 38, it says that Jesus was asleep, and not only was he asleep in the boat, but he's asleep in the back of the boat, in the stern of the boat. And there's these stories, there's these facts, there's these details of this story that don't seem to move the story along much further. Why is this important? Well, as I mentioned that back in those times when people were creating or writing legend, just the whole genre of literature back then, giving this type of detail was very, very unusual. So why is this detail even in there? I think it's in there because this is not legend. This is not some great grand story this is the actual real memory of a person. In this particular case, it's the real memory of Peter as he's handing it down to Mark. You can almost picture, you can almost picture, think about this, just get in the scene. You can almost picture Peter towards the end of his life recounting the scene and then telling his young ministry associate Mark about this particular, this particular event. And he's saying, you know, well, I remember Jesus was in this one boat and then he got into our other boat that we were with, and, and he came just like he was. He just he had had a long day preaching, and he just, he just didn't change clothes. He just got in the boat, and, and there were a whole bunch of other boats around us. And, and, then, and then he told us to go to this other side, and this great storm happened, and, and Jesus was asleep, and he was in sleep in the back of the boat. Do you see how this just sort of feels like a real memory? One writer says that this was either a very sophisticated lie or this was the real reminiscing of a real person. Now, does that prove the truth and veracity of the Scriptures? No. But it's just more evidence that what we have in the Bible today is the real memories of real people. Now, whether or not we believe what they're saying was actually true is a matter of faith, and that's a gift that God has to give us. 
But I think that we can be very confident that what we have in the Bible is the real memory of real people full of little details like Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. So let's look now at three, at three things that I think that this particular story can teach us. The first thing that I want us to see is that, is that Jesus leads us into the storm. Notice that. We know, I think all of us know that okay, Jesus is with his disciples. The storm sort of happens upon them. And then Jesus calms it. And, and now we have this another great display of his power. But even before that, and even subtly, I think it's really important for us to see that, that Jesus is actually leading his disciples into the storm with intentionality. Now, we're prone to, I think, misinterpret or misunderstand what storms. So when we see this storm, I think this storm is given to us, this story is given to us to be a sort of picture of trials and anxieties and and difficulties that come our way. I think that's what the storm here in this scene is to represent to us. I think that many of us are prone to view storms when they come in our life in whatever form that they come in, whether stress or persecution or trial or some sort of tribulation. I think our instant thing is to sort of go into karma mode, isn't it? Well, I, didn't, I wasn't obeying God very much this week, and so therefore this is happening because of that. Or maybe I've not been following God at all, and so this storm is coming to sort of correct me or to punish me. And although God at times certainly has the capacity to do that, in this instance, I want us to see that Jesus is actually leading his disciples who are not disobeying, but actually obeying him into the storm. He's leading them into the storm. And you may say, well, Jesus, how do you know that Jesus... Well, we've clearly evidenced the fact that Jesus is God. And we have the benefit of having the whole revelation of Scripture before us. We know that Jesus is God. We know that he knows the future. And so we know that it's not like the storm snuck up on Jesus. You know, I mean, he didn't have Jim Cantore. He didn't have the Weather Channel. He didn't have the 36-hour outlook on his little little weather channel app but he's God he doesn't he doesn't need it you mean to tell me that Jesus can heal people and do all of these things and oh my gosh I, I, where did this storm come from Jesus knew that there was going to be a storm and I think that's very important for us to understand that Jesus is leading his people into the storm and so that tells us it's a clue that he must have some purpose some greater thing that he's wanting to show and demonstrate and bring about Thomas Brooks, uh, a preacher back in uh, Scotland years and years ago, 400 years ago or so in the 1600s, wrote a little book. It's a whole little book on just one verse, Romans 8.28, that beautiful verse that says, all things work together for the good of those that love God. He just writes a whole book on the providence of God and goodness towards his people, and he speaks about affliction, and this is what he says about storms or affliction that come our way. And how they really serve as our, as our servant, as Jesus' servant, to bring about some good thing in us. He says this, Affliction teaches us to know ourselves. In prosperity, we are for the most part strangers to ourselves. God makes us know affliction that we may better know ourselves. We see that corruption in our hearts in the time of affliction which we would not believe was there. Listen to this last sentence. Water in the glass looks clear, but set it on the fire, and the scum boils up. 
And so you just see, I want us to see before we look at, I think, what is the real heart of this passage is that Jesus very intentionally is leading his disciples into the storm. The storm didn't surprise Jesus. It didn't sneak up on Jesus. Jesus isn't reacting to the storm. Jesus is in his sovereign providential care for his people using the storms to serve his greater means that we'll see here in just a moment. But don't believe that just because some guy named Thomas Brooks, who very likely had a very cool beard because he was a Puritan back in the 1600s. Don't believe it just because some cat named Thomas Brooks wrote a book. Believe it because I think the Bible affirms this. And this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, For this light, momentary affliction. And we know if we could compare Paul's afflictions and storms and trials and difficulties to ours, we would realize that... Um, well, he, he really didn't have what we would think of as light and momentary afflictions, but in the grand view of God's sovereign care for his life, he viewed them that way. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so, so think of this, this, this storm, this, this difficult thing that, that Paul is going through and this storm that the disciples are going through and, and likewise any storm that all of his people are going through, is, is a mere servant of Jesus that he is using to boil up the scum in our lives so that he can deal with it and show us something far greater. So, so that's important for us to see that Jesus leads us into this storm. Which brings us to our second point. And I think the heart of this text is that Jesus has authority over the storm. Look at, look at verse 39 again. So Jesus is asleep. He's asleep. Alright? It is. I mean, he's asleep like it's, it's 5 o'clock on Thursday after the Thanksgiving meal and he's in the lazy boy sort of asleep. Like he's out. I mean, I've never been able to sleep on a boat. I mean, boat. I mean, he's out. And a storm is coming and he's still out. Like he's in the middle of the Detroit Lions Thursday after lunch out like snoring out and they have to wake him up I mean he's think about just the peace and the confidence that Jesus has we're going to look in just a moment at just the significance of him being asleep I mean that he's human like he's we're going to see him be God in just a second but Jesus actually slept I mean he spent the previous couple chapters healing a whole bunch of people and casting out demons and healing whole towns and Arguing and rebuking Pharisees, and so he's like Jesus is fully human. He gets tired and he's out like a light in a storm. And, and then they, they wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And, and then listen to this look at this in verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And, and so, with three words, and actually in the original language, it's just two words. Jesus says, peace, be still. And, and think about this. Now, this is really significant. Jesus doesn't conjure up a prayer. There's no sort of abracadabra. He, he doesn't even pray to God the Father. He doesn't need to. Why? Because he's God. Like, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't have to work anything up just with simple, authoritative power. Just think about this. Jesus speaks to the raging sea. Now, this storm is violent. Now, this, this particular setting of this particular sea that they were on is sitting in a little valley, and 
It's surrounded by mountains that are about 9,000 feet in elevation. And it, even to this day, it happens this way that there's this cold air that would be in the top of the mountains, and then there's this warm air down below in the valley on the water. And sometimes when that cold and warm air hits it, there's this huge quick storm that can just sort of come instantly. And in Matthew's accounting of this gospel, the word he uses for that storm is actually the word that we get earthquake from. It's so violent that there's just, it's not just wind blowing. I mean, this is the point where experienced sailors are thinking that they're going to be capsized and die. And Jesus, with one word, just says, with no conjuring, no stress, just says, peace, be still. Um, Paul Fincher and I work out in mornings, and um, every now and again, uh, he just likes to reestablish his dominance over me physically, and whenever he feels like I may be getting a little bit, you know, just catching up in strength, he'll just put a whole bunch of weight on the bench press, just, just to kind of, you know, just kind of beat me down, keep me in my place. Uh, and Paul is a very strong young man, no doubt about it, but I do notice something about Paul when he puts a whole bunch of weight on the bar. Um, Paul will sit down on the bench and he'll, you know, he'll, uh, he'll have to, you know, he'll warm it up. He'll, he'll, you know, he'll snap out those shoulders and, you know, he, he's doing it. He's pulling himself up and granted he can push a whole lot of weight, but Paul, Paul has a certain amount of conjuring that he has to do before he can push 300 plus pounds off of his chest. <laughs> and and do, you, do you notice the power and the authority of Jesus here? I mean, he's still wiping the sleep from his eyes. And with just two, three words, boom, peace, be still. And it's significant. Not only does the wind stop, but the waves, like instantly the waves are calm. Like it stops. Like it's one thing to stop the wind, but the waves are, are, are stopped. And so what's happening in this, in this, this brief and beautiful display is we see two things coming together. We see... That Jesus is not just a powerful miracle worker, but he is God. Like to the early disciples, they would have clearly made the connection that the only one that can, that can stop the sea, that has control over the sea, that can stop the wind, is God. They, they certainly would have been thinking of Exodus chapter 14 when God rescues his people from the Red Sea, when God just stops the seas. They, they would have certainly been thinking about Psalm 107 that speaks of God alone being the one that can control the wind and the seas. And so when Jesus, with just a few words, stops the raging seas, he is clearly demonstrating his divinity. He is the one who can stop the storm. But, but yet, as there's this beautiful picture of his divinity, there's also this beautiful picture of his humanity, we see Jesus asleep, tired, presumably because he was exhausted from ministering in the previous few chapters. And, and so what's this greater thing here? Because I think that, that if we read this on the surface, we can read this in this way. We read it like this. Well, uh, Jesus is in this boat with his disciples, and... You know, they called on him, and they had this meager faith, but somehow they conjured up enough faith, and they called on Jesus, and he stopped the storm. So, and I think this is an incorrect way to view this passage, is that if, if I'll just have enough faith in Jesus, then he will stop the storms in my life. And friends, although that certainly is within God's power and authority, and certainly at times he may do that, 
I think there's something much deeper going on here. This is really interesting. In Mark's telling of this story in Mark chapter 4, there's all sorts of parallels to another story in the Old Testament, which is Jonah. In the Old Testament, where there's this man named Jonah, I think most of us are probably familiar with Jonah, where he's this, he's this uh, man that God has called to go preach to this particular people, but he refuses, and so he flees from God's call, and he gets on this boat, and God says, no, no, you're not, you're not going to flee. And in Jonah chapter 1, there's a very similar, I mean, the details, the similarities between Jonah chapter 1 and the storm in Jonah chapter 1 and the storm in Mark chapter 4 is striking. And so in Jonah chapter 1, we have this, this prophet of God called to preach who's running from God. And there's this great storm that arises very quickly in Jonah chapter 1, just like it does in Mark chapter 4. And we have these men, these sailors who come to Jonah and they wake him up and they say, we're, we're about to perish. This, this must be your fault. You're, you seem to be, maybe you're disobeying your God. And, and Jonah tells the sta- sailors, although there's many different similarities between Jonah 1 and Mark 4, the difference is, is that Jonah doesn't have the power to stop the storm by his words, but he knows that God is punishing these people and him. And so he offers himself and he says, no, no, I, I will I, throw me overboard. And that will satisfy God's wrath because God is punishing me and us because of my rebellion. And so they're like, okay. And they throw, throw, if you say so, whatever it takes. And they throw Jonah over. Of course, we know, many of us, the story is that that wasn't the end of God's plan for Jonah. But God had a big fish to come and swallow Jonah up and to rescue him and, and again bring him back to being on his mission. The difference in Mark 4 is that Jesus, in this instance, doesn't offer himself up like Jonah did. But later on in the Gospels, we do see Jesus saying, that I am like the greater Jonah. He says that I, I, I am like that Jonah. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us that he has the power to stop the storm. The, the, the storms that he stops is not just every little individual storm that we find ourselves when we're in our boat, but Jesus is showing the disciples and he's showing us that we are reading that I am alone the one that can stop the storm, but there's a greater storm. You see, there's a bigger storm than just this storm that you fishermen find yourself in right now. There's a bigger storm of God's judgment and God's wrath for your sin that is barreling down on your head. And Jesus is saying that I am the one, the one, the new and greater Jonah, who will throw himself into the sea to satisfy the raging waters of the righteousness of God which you have disobeyed against. And so Jesus is is giving us this picture, although these early disciples may not have completely understood it, he's giving us this picture of the fact that he has authority over the storm, and the storm is not just some temporal wind, but it's the storm of sin and wrath and judgment that is barreling down on all of our heads, lest we repent and believe in Jesus. Friends, the point of this story is not that Jesus has this power to get us out of the temporary fixes of our life, although he does. The point of the story is that Jesus has the authority because he is fully God and fully man to once and for all calm the storm of sin and hell that rage 
against us. And that like Jonah, he offers up himself. But unlike Jonah, not because he's disobedient, but because he's the perfect God-man. And God accepts his perfect humanity as the only sacrifice that will still the storm that is coming our way. And that gets us to, I think, the third and final and, and, and the point that I really want us to see here is that Jesus doesn't just calm the storm. He causes worship. Jesus isn't just here to solve our temporary problems or, or, or even just to secure our eternal destiny, but there's something even greater beyond that, and it is to cause our eternal worship. Let's read verses 40 and 41 again. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. So they've gone from being scared of the storm to what appears to be more scared of Jesus. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I, I would expect that maybe this story might end like, well, Jesus, wow, thank you, Jesus, thank you. Like now we can resume sort of our life. Now, now we can get back into fishing or doing whatever. But, but this, this scene is so magnificent. The display of Jesus' power is so ferocious and so awe-inspiring that it actually causes a greater fear. And, and, and although clearly I don't think that Jesus wants his children to be afraid of him, I think that there is a doorway here. There is a, there is a, a nugget here that I think we, we must see. And this is the point of the story, I think, is that Jesus is wanting to show his disciples and to show us that he is bigger and more awe-inspiring than any temporary storm. Because here's the deal. Fear, in a strange way, fear of lesser things is a sort of perverted form of worship. Do you, do you see this? Like when we're scared of something, whether it's being scared of the reputation that we might have publicly, it's a fear of man, or we're, we're, a fear of, we're, we're, we're afraid of failing, or we're afraid of something bad happening to us, or we're afraid of, of something that we just can't control. What happens when we fear is, is our world, as I spoke about at the beginning, just sort of shrinks down, and we're, we're trapped, in my case as a middle schooler, in a cold tile bathroom for a weekend, but, but really that's sort of a symbol of how, how fear sort of causes us to worship wrong things. And the way Jesus fights our idolatrous worship of wrong things is not to just remove that thing and then, then to just sort of set us on our merry way so we can be cozy and comfortable. But he, he fights our idolatry in fear of wrong things by showing us something that is so much greater, so much more awe-inspiring, so much more so much more to be revered than any other thing. And so he's showing us his power so that we will worship him more than we worship the false things that we fear and shrink to. Do, do we see this? That fear has a way of shrinking our world down to a suffocating little box. 
What are you most afraid of right, right now? The fear of man? Is it the f- fear of maybe your children not being as successful or talented as you maybe are hoping them to be? Is it a fear that you won't get the girl or the guy or the job? Is it a fear that maybe you won't be as successful as you'd hoped you'd be? And do you see that Jesus doesn't come to sort of cozy up next to us and help us fight our fear with pragmatism and tips on how to achieve our goals better? He comes to stop the raging waters of sin and hell and God's wrath and our idolatry and to redirect our hearts to a much greater thing to fear and revere and worship his power and his authority. I've spent much of my life fearful of things. I spent uh, well, my middle school years fearing my older brother. Ironically enough, I spent much of my time in high school being debilitatingly afraid of public speaking. I spent a good part of my time in college fearing that I would fail out. In fact, for those young West Pointers in here, I was a rock math guy the first semester, which is the lowest math that you can get. And I remember taking that math final at the end of the semester my freshman year. And if you fail that final, you're gone. Pack up your bags and go home. And I remember walking back from that final to my dorm room saying my goodbyes to my... (laughs) Sorry, guys. I failed. I'm going to have to go back and tell my parents that I failed out of college. And in God's God's kind providence, I think he caused temporary blindness for the professor. (laughs) Or just a spirit of delusion came over him, and he marked all my wrong answers right, and I limped through the remaining math classes that I had to take in college and somehow graduated. I spent fear. I spent a good bit of my time in pastoral ministry fearing the consequences of preaching a hard truth or maybe somebody being upset or whatever. I realize that sometimes I spend a good amount of my, past, my parental energy fearing uh, some undesired future for my children. No, it's not such an obvious storm, but it's a gradual storm. It's a gradual storm of idolatry and trading in fear and worship of the great God for these little tiny lesser fears that, that, that really just sort of slowly suffocate you. Are you trading in these lesser, counterfeit fears of these little storms that that Jesus has clearly shown us? Listen, I I have the power to calm that raging steep. I have the power to still and stop that. In fact, I have stilled and stopped the most 
the most powerful raging sea that you need to be concerned with, and that is sin and hell and the wrath of a righteous God. I have stopped that by offering myself up. But but I don't want to just lift you out of these temporary fears. I I want you to see something so much more beautiful and awe-inspiring. And I want you to not be scared of me, but I want to shock you out of lesser suffocating counterfeit fears. And I want you to worship me. Do you see that? And like me, are you prone to these little suffocating storms? Well, here's the good news. (laughs) The good news is the answer, it seems, all the time in the Bible. Repent again. Turn from these things and look to Jesus. The one who need not conjure, but the one who has the power to say, peace be still. Look to Jesus even now, friend. Are you trusting in yourself? Do you have some sort of false Christian culture caricature of Jesus as merely a dispenser of helpful tips? Look away from that false God. Look away from trusting in yourself. Look away from that and look to Jesus, the one who the seas and the wind obey. And when you look to Jesus, you're looking away from yourself. You're repenting from your sin. And you're choosing to fear and trust and worship him more than all of these little broken things. Let's do that even now. Father, as we come now to to respond to you, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us look and see Jesus who, who alone can still the storm. I pray that you would help us be brutally honest with ourselves. I pray that we would know ourselves well and that you would give us the kind grace to be able to identify all of these little petty, broken, suffocating fears that seize our hearts and shield our eyes from the, the one great thing that we should truly worship, which is you. I pray that you would give us this beautiful freedom that comes in seeing and savoring and beholding our God. I pray that you'd break us free from these, these little false gods that we worship and fear. And that you'd help us see Jesus, who even the wind and seas obey. And I pray, Lord, that you would produce in us a sort of awe and confidence and joy as we see Jesus and respond to him. And I pray these things in his great and glorious name. Amen.